I'm gonna ask you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of 1 Peter. And when you get there, I want you to put your finger there and just hold that page and we'll get there here in a moment. Um, I wanna highlight a few things. Uh, this is the final message in regards to the Post Tenebrus Lux uh, series. Post Tenebrus Lux being a Latin phrase that means after darkness, light. And that was the motto uh, for the Reformation 500 years ago uh, in regards to uh, this idea that, you know, after centuries of the scriptures being taught exclusively in Latin and only being available into the hands of people in Latin, even though that was not the common language of the people, uh, imagine hundreds of years of that, uh, there was truly darkness in their understanding of scripture. So unless they had uh, direct conversations with, with the, the pastoral leadership, uh, they wouldn't know and understand what scripture actually says. And so it was a significant thing that, uh, that we came to that place where, where scripture was becoming something accessible to the people. And that's where we began this series was explaining how darkness uh, was eradicated by the light of the word of God. And then we looked at how uh, at these different place, uh, points uh, that Luther uh, posted not 500 years ago, the, the 95 theses. And, and so we've, we've not addressed all 95. Some of them are further explanation of primary points. And so uh, we highlighted the sections that are basically within those 95 points and theses. And so uh, one key area to be understood from Luther's uh, 95 theses is this idea of justification by faith alone. In other words, you can't find justification. You can't be made right before God. Can't, God can't see you as being uh, worthy of coming into the kingdom of God except through faith. Not by any kind of human effort, not by a paid indulgence. Uh, it, it is only by faith in the work of God, which then this faith is in the sufficient work then of the grace of God. And that grace being the work of the cross that was done on our behalf, that the cross was sufficient. It was enough. And so that became the grace by which you and I have the opportunity to be justified before God by faith. And then we talked about after that, that this idea that because we are justified by faith, we are now seen as holy in the eyes of God. There is a priesthood of the believer that happens that we have direct access to Jesus Christ. We can be in his presence and we can do so uh, with confidence. Uh, speaking from Hebrews chapter 10, where it says we can enter into the holy of holies, that, that precious place because of the new curtain that is established by the blood of Christ. Again, in scripture, very clear that we have that direct access and therefore we don't have to pray through another. Now, can we pray for each other? Can we intercede on each other's behalf? Absolutely, but it isn't the only way. We don't have to trust, you don't have to rely upon me advocating for you before God, nor any priest. However, we advocate for you and we pray for you, and that, that is a pleasure, but it's, not also, but it's not necessarily 
a necessity. I would call it an essential, but again, not a necessity. Because we have directs each of us who are in Christ by faith through that grace, grace work of him, we can then be in the presence of God. And as a result, we, can, we must each discover a personal faith in Christ while here on this earth. That's what scripture teaches, is that the opportunity for you and I to find that justification by faith through grace alone happens while here on this earth. Our opportunities rise to the point of our final breath. Scripture is very clear that it's in this lifetime that we make those decisions. Therefore, once we pass from this life to the next, our opportunity for decision uh, to operate by faith in the work of Christ has been completed. That opportunity is done, and we've entered into eternity. Jesus speaks to this, this in, in the book of Luke when he says, the, we, we can't go from here to there. There is a chasm between heaven and hell, and once it's established, it is established. And that is established at lifetime, which is why the idea of purgatory is not something we can accept from out of scripture, and this would be a, a a a point of disagreement between a Protestant or a Catholic. However, in this, we then establish all these things by this, that the word of God is indeed our authority, and it is our daily guide to knowing what truth is and the manner by which we are to live out that truth. Everything I've just said that we've taught over the last few weeks isn't from the authority of some Protestant proclamation. It is out of the authority written in the word of God and the word of God alone. We do not use the history of the Protestant church to guide us in this, although we can learn a lot from the history of the whole church, both Catholic and Protestant, and there's much to learn. But the authoritative teaching by which we know and understand truth and then live out the truth and by what manner we live out that truth is all under the guide of the word of God that comes out of the very breath, the lungs, and the heart of God himself. Having said this, Several people have asked over the weeks, so where do we stand today? Because we've been talking about a 500 year history and even beyond, going back to when the church became unified at the point of Constantine all those years ago, like several hundred years ago, uh, and prior even to the point of the 95 Thesis. Where do we stand today? Do we see that the church is one church, both Catholic and Protestant. Is there something that can cause us to work together? And so I wanna address that before we get into the teaching of the word today. So first of all, you need to understand, we are talking about a long history of the church. But in the more recent history of the church, going back about 55 years, there was something significant that happened between the years of 1962 and 1965, and that would be called, in the street language of things, Vatican II, or the official title, the Second Vatican Council. What happened during this time was that that, uh, the Pope at the time initiated that we need to call a council together to bring about a greater movement of of the Spirit of God in the church and to unify the church. So here's what happened in Vatican II. 
First of all, mass was then allowed from that point on. So again, the practice of the Catholic Church up to this time was very different. But starting in 1962 to 65, after that Vatican Council uh, was, was finished, mass was allowed to be taught in the common language of the people, which then led to the Catholic scriptures being printed in the common language of the people. So what happened for the Protestant church 500 years ago happened a little over 50 years ago for the Catholic church where the language was being taught or the scriptures were being taught in the common language of the listener and they could read the scriptures in the common language that they knew. So Latin was no longer the exclusive teaching of the Catholic church. Also, the priest began to function differently. Up to this point, the priest was purely speaking towards the cross and, and towards uh, Christ alone. And, they, and, and, and as a part of the Vatican II, they, they turned the priest where he actually taught the people. That is something that has only happened in the last, again, 50 years. So up to that point, the, 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 the posture was very different. So now there is a direct communication to the people within the Catholic Church. The also, what happened was that it opened a direct door. This is specifically stated in the Vatican Council, that, that, that it opened a direct door to the Protestant Church and acknowledged the Protestant Church as part of the Christian family. Okay, so they, they, there was an acknowledgement that happened. In fact, there was an invitation from some key Protestant leaders at that time to be observers of this council to begin to, again, allow for a, a unified church. And so, yes, there are still differences. Yes, there, it is true that if you, as a Protestant, went to a Catholic service, you would, not be able to, you would not be able to participate in communion with them. However, they do welcome you in, into the service, and there is an acknowledgement of the Protestant church. They also, in this, specifically state that they sought pardon from the Protestants for creating separation in the church. Now that's interesting, because again, after hundreds of years of a separation between Protestants and Catholics, they're acknowledging that there was a separation that they had led, and they sought pardon for that. Now there was never an acknowledgement of the thousands of Protestants that were burned at the stake, but there was a pardon of the separation. And so that was a key step, again, to bringing healing. You start somewhere, you acknowledge something, and you start somewhere, and so a healing began when they acknowledged that they had created a separation in the church. Another key thing that was very important in Vatican II was that they acknowledged that the Jews were no, long, no more responsible for the death of Christ than the Christian. Now, that might not seem significant to you, but up to that point, it was, it was a teaching of the church that the Jews were the ones responsible for the killing of Christ. Well, if you read scripture, you, the only person you could basically accuse uh, or hold responsible for the death of Christ is God himself. It was God who initiated and appointed Jesus Christ to die. 
But up to this point in the 60s, it was the teaching of the church that the Jews were responsible for the death of Christ, which is why in World War II, the Catholic Church didn't have the best of stance in regards to Hitler. And so that is a key thing that just a few years after World War II, they acknowledged that they are no more responsible for the death of Christ than us as Christians, which is a big amen and truth. And so then the purpose of this Vatican II was to do this, and this is again in the context and the actual written statements of the Vatican II was to renew the church, to rediscover the nature of the church, and to identify the role of the bishop or the teaching or the pastor, and to restore Christian unity. The desire was to see doctrine And this was a statement from the Pope who actually called and convened this council. But he says, I desire to see the doctrine of the church become more penetrating in its effect on mankind. So what is he saying? I want the word of God to start penetrating the lives of people that it's not merely identified as being Catholic and that's the only thing that changes a person, but rather I am Catholic and and the word is penetrating my life and affecting the way I live. That was the desire of the Vatican II Council. Another significant thing happened. In 1999, you may not know this, but in 1999, a joint declaration on the doctrine of justification happened between the leaders of the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church. Don't after all that we've talked about in, in the last few weeks, do not lose the irony of this. 500 years ago, a Catholic priest named Martin Luther hung a 95 theses on the door of a church in Germany. He then was then uh, caused a, a death opportunity or a threat was come, came against him from the Catholic church and therefore he became isolated into a monastery for the rest of his life. This was what happened to Luther on behalf of the Catholic church and now the Lutheran church and the Catholic church came together in 1999 to give this direct statement that it is a common understanding of our justification by God's grace through faith in Christ. Do you hear this? That is the key statement of the churches now, both Lutheran, both Lutheran and Catholic, Protestant and Catholic, that it is a common understanding of our justification that it is by God's grace through faith in Christ. 1999, in our lifetime, this comes about. This is significant in the opportunity for us as Protestant and Catholic to come together as a unified church. Now, something else to highlight that I I want again, because we've talked about some of the history that we, quite frankly, do not agree with in the history of the Catholic Church, but I wanna also highlight then a couple of things that we need to thank them for. Here are two significant things we need to be extremely grateful for in regards to the Catholic Church. Number one is this. The Catholic Church has been the greatest barrier, the greatest barrier to those who want to see abortion become full form and norm in society. The Catholic Church has stood the strongest on that issue more than any Protestant church ever has in saying that abortion is wrong. Those children that are in the womb are filled with life and therefore we protect. And we need to thank God for the Catholic Church's stand on that issue. Secondly, 
that Catholic Church's teachings on marriage are more steadfast and consistent than much of the Protestant church. And this is true. While I know that there are sometimes mixed messages that can come through what you hear today, it is true that the Catholic Church's teachings on marriage are way more steadfast and are way more consistent than the Protestant Church. If you took the teachings of marriage from across the, 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 the lines of the Protestant Church, you will get a very warped and misconstrued and a very uh, distorted view of marriage. If you get the teachings of the Catholic Church, it's consistent and it's steadfast. Now I'm speaking to the teachings of the Catholic Church, not necessarily the practice of those who are Catholic, because if you do the same with the Protestants, we fail as well, okay? So the consistent teachings of the Catholic Church on marriage, we need to say thank you to them. So what does this mean in regards to our partnership uh, or the idea of a unified church? I believe that we can partner with them in regards to advancing the gospel. If you believe that the the two churches believe that it is justification by faith alone through the work of grace of Christ, you can partner together in regards to the gospel. Now where there is difference, obviously, is that how we teach the relationship between us as a follower of Christ and in regards to how we walk with Christ, there is a difference. By we, we de-emphasize the, the praying to other things. We pray directly to Christ as the Protestant church. And so we speak to a much more direct relationship with Jesus than what is a practice in the Catholic church. But however, they do teach and agree with what the gospel is. So therefore, let us join forces on that and let the teaching of the word continue to penetrate the Catholic Church. Keep in mind, thousand, over a thousand years of teaching without the word of God in the hands of the Catholic Church. Today, 50 years in, the word of God is now in their hands and, and slowly you're seeing changes. I mean. It would have been inconceivable in 1962 to 65 to think that by 1999 there would be a joint agreement between the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church. And that was a significant moment that happened. So let God continue to do his work on what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and trusting in that work versus perhaps other things that can become a distraction to that relationship with Jesus. And so I believe that in time, with the word of God in the hands of Catholics, you will see more of a unified uh, uh, practice and and understanding of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Okay, we gotta hear an amen there. Because this is huge. Jesus said, the world will know that Jesus and the Father are one when the church is unified as one. Our message will be more greatly understood when those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ are operating together, then that begins to show evidence that God is at work and that Jesus Christ is by whose name he is working. And so it is important for us to have that hope and embrace the hope that the church would become unified. 
If the word of God is accessible and the Holy Spirit, if you believe in the Holy Spirit's work, I believe you will begin to see the work of God in both the Protestant church and the Catholic church. The Protestant church has its ills. Like I said, we become so diversified in the teachings of scripture to a fault. And so I believe that if we pray that God will work in the Protestant church and that God will continue to do this fresh work in the Catholic church, that our hope for unification of the church can happen. Now, things are, are changing slowly, as I said. In our own town, here I know I recognize not everybody lives here in Lidditz, but, but in this town there is a Catholic church of which I have a relationship with some of the staff at that church, and that church is called St. James. What is interesting, if you were to have their bulletin in your hands today, you would be able to see that they host Beth Moore Bible Studies. You would see that they have the Alpha Course. The Alpha Course is a teaching of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and to know what, what first steps are in faith. Well, guess what? This church has Beth Moore Bible studies every year. This church also hosts the Alpha Course with our teenagers. So that's incredible that in this town, the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches have similar practices of how they're teaching the Word of God. Also, this is interesting. The youth ministry at St. James this past year in the school year of 2016 and 2017 had this particular theme for its year. Now, I'll share this. The youth pastor at the Catholic Church, St. James, attended one of our worship services when he had a Sunday off. When he was here, we were teaching on God's mission for our lives. We were it was back in the, in the spring of, this, of, of 2016 when we were teaching about our vision of making disciples of Jesus Christ and where we make disciples is in our oikos. That's that Greek term that is used in scripture to describe our relational world or where we have influence over others. And, and so in, in that, we can see in scripture how the term oikos was where the disciples and people in scripture made disciples and so when he was when this youth pastor was hearing this he was immediately cut to the heart and says this is what i want the students at saint james to understand so he and i had lunch together we talked about oikos and to my surprise and also delight the theme for saint james's youth ministry for 2016 and 2017 was oikos making disciples of jesus christ in your relational world so even in that practice, we see the bridge of God beginning to happen when the Holy Spirit works. I would have never, ever believed and thought that a Greek term would penetrate the Catholic Church. I would have thought we'd have to come up with a Latin term for it, but look how God is moving. And so if that is what God is doing there, trust me, if they're making the scriptures available, and, and people are sincerely pursuing God. The Holy Spirit is at work, and he will begin to bring the truth to the surface. Let the Holy Spirit do his work, and let's do less judgmentalism over the past, because trust me, we, if we want to put the mirror up, can show a lot where we have erred. And so having said that, God is at work in the Catholic Church, and God is at work in the Protestant Church. We need to pray for God to continue this transformation in them and in us. 
So if we want a fresh wind of God's spirit in this region that produces a great harvest, which is why we've been speaking that the vision of this church is creating space, expecting harvest. If we want that harvest to happen, it is my prayer and it has been my prayer since 2008 that the tip of the spear would include both Catholic and Protestant. I've never revealed that before the church, but I want you to know I have been praying since 2008 that the tip of the spear of a movement of God would include both Catholic and Protestant because I can't get away from what Jesus says that the people of the world will know that the truth is found in the church when the church itself is unified. And if we call upon the name of Christ, of which Catholics do, and so do we, then we need to pray for God to continue to restore that church. And I am praying for a harvest in this region. So therefore, I pray for St. James and I pray for other Catholic churches around us in Ephrata, Mannheim, and Township, and even north into southern Lebanon County. I am praying that God will do a fresh work through the Holy Spirit in the revelation of God's word, which are now in the hands of people. That is how I would love for this church to pray. We're gonna conclude this service and praying that way. But I wanna teach first before we get there because there's a couple other things I want us to pray about. Luther ended his 95 Theses with these two points. Number 94 is this. Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ, their head, through penalties, through death, and even through hell. And he was referring to the, practice, the, the aspect of how difficult life can get here, even on earth. Number 95 clarifies that when he says this, and thus, being confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations, rather than through the false security of peace. Luther knew that when he posted these 95 theses, things were gonna become difficult for those who truly pursued the teachings of scripture. And he wanted to prepare them that it was better to, to be diligent in following Christ, even if things got difficult, and to be then confident that we're entering heaven through many tribulations, that we can trust that it is worth it to suffer for the name of Jesus. Luther knew when he posted it, it was a matter of time before he'd become defrocked and they would give license to him to be burned at the stake. So he saw this in advance and he posted it, if you dare to live out scripture, you dare to let scriptures rise up and to penetrate your life, it could cost you. And unfortunately, it was gonna cost them from the church itself. So now I want to go to Peter, 1 Peter chapter four. The context was not much different. Peter was speaking now to a church that says towards the end of Peter's career and ministry and at this point, the church is already under significant attack. You see, not only were those who of, of the Hebrew tradition and, and of, of the priesthood at that time uh, within the Jewish priesthood, were they not only trying to eradicate the faith, but even Rome was threatened by the, the movement of Jesus Christ. And so they were getting threats from the federal government and from within the culture of their own people. And so Peter knew that he was speaking to a people that were already losing jobs, were already facing public 
persecution. And he says this to them. Verse 12 of chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. So just a, a few points to be drawn out of that. He starts with saying, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if, if out of pursuing Jesus, it gets difficult. Some people, especially in America where we're not used to suffering, think that if I choose to follow Jesus, that, that it means that things are gonna go easy. And so when it gets difficult after following Jesus, what, what people often do is like, well, wait a second, God, I'm following you now. Why am I not being blessed? Why are things getting difficult? I mean, isn't it inherent that when we, we think we're choosing something that's gonna please God, that, that it was should all of a sudden, it's like, okay, now God's gonna just shower blessings and it's gonna become easy. That when it becomes difficult at the very moment you try to honor God, you go, well, thanks very much, God. I, I did this for you. You know, at least you could do is make this better for me. The reality is, it says, don't be surprised as to the fiery ordeal that can come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It is not strange that when you begin to live out for Jesus, that it coincides with difficulty. Do not find that strange. Find that normal. Imagine what would change in perspective for us if we really looked at it that way. Is that if I make a decision to follow after Jesus more holy than I have before, that it's not strange, it's not abnormal that things might get a little difficult. And I say just a little difficult because that's often really what we're dealing with is just little difficulties. Some of us face significant difficulties and as compared to others in our culture. But let me tell you, don't get me started if you want to talk about difficulties when you start talking about those living out their faith in Iran. Iraq, Afghanistan, and yes, even in Israel. There can be challenges that when you declare your faith there, that suffering is directly, directly coincides with choosing to follow Christ. So he says, don't be surprised. Secondly, he, in verse 13, he actually says, not only should you not be surprised, but you should celebrate it. It's like, wow. I just chose to live out for Jesus Christ publicly and something difficult came of it. Wow, I just joined Jesus in the journey. This is, I'm being identified with him. I mean, in verse 13 it says, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Not only later, but even now as his glory is revealed through you. How incredible is that statement? 
But also, he says, don't, and he throws this in, it's kind of an insertion just so people don't start saying, um, what should I say, falsely, I'm suffering, so I rejoice in the Lord for suffering when they're suffering is because they lied, they cheated, they defrauded. He says, so he, he brings this out. I'm not talking about a suffering that's a result of sin or your mistakes. No, that suffering is part of the consequences of your life, and that should not be celebrated. But if you're suffering for his name, which is the clarity of verse 16, if you're suffering for his name, don't receive the praise to yourself, but rather praise the Lord. And look at verse 16, it says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, do not cower from it, but praise God that you bear his name. So, we're not to celebrate ourselves once we start suffering for the name of Jesus. That would be extremely strange. But rather, when we suffer for the name of Jesus, we celebrate that we join Jesus Christ in his sufferings. Paul actually, in 2 Timothy verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, says he actually invites Timothy to join him in suffering. When it says this, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord of me or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So he says the same thing as Peter. Don't be ashamed of the suffering. But don't receive the glory for yourself. Do the glory for God and and let's do this together. Let's, Let's live out Jesus Christ even if it causes us harm. Paul says to the church in Philippi, he, he actually sees it as a calling that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a calling to suffer. When he says this in, in verse 29 of, verse, of chapter one, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ that not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So when we believe in him, yes, there can be an absolute uh, experience of peace and joy that is life-changing, and there can be seasons, long seasons, where it's so good in walking with Jesus. But it is also true that when we begin to live out by faith in more greater ways publicly among our oikos, suffering can happen. Suffering can happen, and we should consider that as part of the call of following after Jesus Christ. So having said that, if we're called being invited into suffering and that it's even potentially our calling to suffer and that we shouldn't be surprised at the suffering, then why is it that the majority of Christians in America don't often suffer? I believe a lot of it has to do with when you study the difference between a believer and a non-believer in the United States, they say there's less than 2% difference in life behavior between those who call themselves Christian and those who are not. So I believe that calls us out to say that if you're living for Jesus and you're proclaiming and bearing the name of Jesus upon you, don't find it strange if it gets difficult. Don't find it strange if it becomes something you did not expect and it becomes actually suffering that comes with the name that we carry. Jesus suffered for his name. So why would it be any different for us? Now, I've been living out Christ for quite a few years now and I will tell you that there's been way more blessing than I would say hardship, but there have been times that yes, because of the name of Christ, I have suffered. 
or I experienced something that was difficult because of the name of Christ. But it's in those seasons that we get the opportunity to realize how beautiful it is that Jesus did what he did and to appreciate those who actually suffer perhaps even for their own life because of the name of Jesus. We're gonna conclude this service by praying. And it's gonna be a prayer of the heart. It's not gonna be an outer prayer, but it's gonna be a prayer of the heart, and we're gonna pray for four things. We're gonna pray for the local church. That, that we, and, and we're gonna pray that there'll be unity, and there'll be, uh, the word of God will rise up in authority in the local church, and even in the face of social rejection. We're gonna pray that there will be a spirit of oneness and gentleness with each other. We're going to pray that, that if there is suffering, that we'll bring glory to God by seeing lives changed. We're also gonna pray that the church will walk according to the name of Jesus and being faithful to that. We're going to pray for the church globally that is suffering because of the name of Jesus. And then we're gonna pray locally for a harvest to happen. And perhaps that both Protestant and Catholic will be at the tip of that spear when that harvest happens. So let's enter into this time of prayer at this time. I would ask that you just take a moment to pray that the church will walk according to the name of Jesus Christ and to his glory alone, beginning with you. That you will begin to walk by Jesus' name and to his glory alone. Let's pray in the silence of our own hearts. Let's now pray for the church, that it, especially the Church of America, that it will not shrink back from the face of suffering at the cost of the word becoming the authority within its midst, even in the face of social rejection. Let's pray that the church in America, that, that there will be a spirit of oneness and gentleness and respect to those who might insult us. Let's pray that the church in America, that for whatever suffering that might happen as a result of the church, standing against social norms, but for the sake of the glory of Jesus' name, that in the face of that suffering, that will bring glory to God, and as a result, more lives will be changed. Let's pray for the church in America that we will not shrink back and stand on the word. Let's conclude the prayer for the church in America by praying that the Protestant church, which primarily what we just prayed for is an issue of the Protestant church where we're, we're caving on the spiritual authority that comes from scripture. Let's pray that, but also pray for the Catholic church, that the word of God in their hands will continue to penetrate and that a revival would happen with even the Catholic church in its midst.
And let's pray now for the global church. So many places in the world where it is illegal to say the name of Jesus and proselytize and to share of that relational opportunity for saving grace. Many are in prison because of having shared the name of Jesus. Others have had their homes burned. They've had their family tortured. Others have had themselves robbed and stolen and publicly humiliated. Let's pray for the persecuted church around the world right now that God will help them persevere and that God will help reveal through their suffering that Jesus is indefinitely who he says he is and that he will change lives. So pray that their suffering will produce a fruit in the lives of those who have harmed them and those who are watching that harm happen to them. Let's pray for that church that is persecuted. And now let's conclude our prayer by praying that God would bring a harvest to northern Lancaster County. That even where we live and reside, that there would be a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. And that it will penetrate the churches of this region, the church of Christ. All of us, one body, one spirit, one mind. Together, let's pray that God would bring about that harvest. So God, I pray to you, I seek you to do a significant work in our country through the church. Change our spirit towards one another. Change our spirit towards how we see what is true. Help us realize that we have walked away from the very things that gave us even the understanding of the gospel that is written about in your scriptures. Help us to see that, the, that we've walked away from the, the word of God being the authority and we've, we've decided that it's, it's the, the masses that decide, the popular vote that decides what is true and what to take from scripture. Lord, convict that. Reveal the falsehood in that. But then reveal your glory in those churches that are seeking the truth. Not just at the exclusion of the other, but so that the other will be drawn back into relationship with Jesus and see the word of God as being the authority. The hope and faith is found in Christ alone. And God, I pray for the church that is a global, that, that where so many places in the world, I, I think of India, I think of, uh, of some of the churches that have been growing so significantly there and now how pastors are being brought out into the streets and their families are being killed in front of them and, and their houses are being burned. They're being beaten publicly. And that's a new movement that's happened there in India, but that's been going on for years in the countries around them, in Afghanistan, in, in places like Iran and Iraq and Pakistan. Lord, it is, are, the believers there are paying a great price. But I pray, God, that those who are harming them will be moved, just like those who were crucifying Jesus were moved by the spirit of Jesus, even to where the centurion oversaw it, said, surely he must have been the son of God. I pray that that would be what happens to those who do that work of harm against them, that it would begin to bear fruit and it would change tongues 
and tribes and peoples where they go from crucifying those who are following of Christ to being embodied by that name and being a part of the family of God. But God, we sit here in northern Lancaster County. There are many churches between here and our home. We might pass three or four churches just to get home today. God, I pray that there would be a fresh wind and fire in those churches. That you would, that you would begin to do a work that, that, is, that it causes every church in this region to be bent again in submission to the authority of Scripture and longing for a relationship with you, Jesus. And as a result, that every house of worship that calls upon the name of Christ would become a vibrant church, a growing church. And that those who live in this area that, that know about the religiosity of this county will begin to see that there's something real and it's not just something to tour and to observe. So God, I pray for that work. I pray for a harvest. And I pray that it will be both Catholic and Protestant because you're doing a mighty work of unity. Because Lord, I believe that that happened. The world would take notice that Catholic and Protestant are pursuing and worshiping Jesus Christ passionately together. That would be a game changer. And so Lord, I pray to that end. And so God, I just ask that you would speak to this church and that this church would be faithful, that we would be faithful to your word, we'd be faithful to your leadership, faithful to the Holy Spirit within us, that we would walk more than 2% different, but that we would walk greatly different so that the world can see that we bear a different name and we can point to Jesus Christ so that he would be glorified, not us. I pray all this in great hope and anticipation, but in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus' words. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also that those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me and they may be one as you, we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I don't need to add to scripture, do I? These are the words of Jesus himself and therefore the heart of God revealed right before us. That is our prayer. So as we walk out of here, we walk in hope of greater unity so that the world will know that is the message I would love for you to walk away with. And as we walk this out, expect hardship to happen. Don't find it strange. Accept it and let the glory go to Jesus Christ. Amen.